The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the Homes Report's Amir editor and I'm here with our CEO and editor-in-chief Arun Sudarman. Hi Arun. Hi Maya, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well. I've just, just um, returned to Hong Kong. I was in Singapore for a couple of days. Um, but back to Hong Kong now, which as you know is not the most... Uh, relaxed of places these days. No, I bet um, it's going through the most extraordinary period of of turmoil. You know, we, we haven't seen anything like this for a, for a long time. Um, for those who aren't on top of the news, what's what's been going on, and how's the situation developed over the past few weeks? It's really interesting because we're, we're so unused to seeing Hong Kong in the news at all, um, and I think that's actually been one of the real uh issues in hong kong is is kind of ha- this this feeling that the city has just become increasingly irrelevant over the last um i'd say definitely over the last decade um and so yes yeah there's definitely a feeling here in hong kong and and with some justification i feel that hong kong is less and less relevant because um you know it has been overtaken by many other chinese cities um, I think I, I don't think that's an unfair description. Um, so at the very least, it's it's been interesting and a little weird to see Hong Kong in the news so much, um, leading the BBC, you know, on various news sites, and there's a ton of journalists here who are covering everything that's going on. And so that has been quite strange. And you know, everyone asks everyone that I speak to. The first question is, what's what's going on in Hong Kong? How's it going? Um, I mean, I think it's, how to describe it, it's been, as you said, a period of extraordinary turmoil. It's, we're entering the 10th week now of um, sustained protesting and unrest, uh, which began with two giant protests uh, a week apart in June, at which first one million people came out and then at the second one two million people came out and then since then these sort of protests have just continued they've morphed into smaller gatherings into different types of protests they've escalated in many cases they've become increasingly violent Um, they have become increasingly unstable I think they began with a lot of optimism and and quite a lot of feeling of um, inspiration around what was going on but now that we enter the 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 10th week I think that that has been replaced not completely replaced but to some extent that's been replaced by this by a sense of um, foreboding um, about how everything might end Um, the fact that there's um, there's been so little dialogue between the two sides the government and the protesters means that they are, I would say, now further apart than they've ever been. So the prospect of any kind of a solution is just increasingly remote. Um, 
I just came through the airport today. Uh, I landed just as the uh, three days of sit-ins at Hong Kong airport is planned and picked up the brochure and it, you know, the, the main slogan on there is we will never surrender. Um, so it's becoming incre- increasingly intractable, it seems, both, yeah. you know, both sides, entrenched. Um, and, and yeah, frankly, it, there's more and more violence. Um, it's spreading from the center of Hong Kong to various different residential districts uh, around the city. Um, so that's been quite an interesting development to follow as well. Um, at this point, it's really difficult to 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 see how it's going to play out. One of the questions people always ask me is, well, is it going to stop? Is it going to, to end? What's going to happen? Um, it's really hard to see a finish line. I mean, some, some people suggest that um, schools start next week and university starts, I think, in September or even October. Um, I mean, that's a long way away. If, if people are waiting for university to start, I mean, that, that's a long time. Um, maybe more likely is the prospect that it is stopped by some other type of external event, you know, a third, a third party becoming involved, let's say, whether that's um, the PLA or some other security force from, from mainland China. Yeah, that's not an excellent prospect, is it? You tweeted um <laughs> you tweeted a couple of weeks ago that seeing Hong Kong in the on the global news bulletins was uh in, in this way was, was heartbreaking. What's it been like from the point of view of a resident and someone who knows and loves the city? It is heartbreaking in, in, in some respects because I think as a Hong Konger you you know, Hong Kong's reputation has always been, I think, as, as this amazing city, really vibrant, mm. one of the world centres, um, you know, one of the great cities, honestly, in the world. And instead, it's it's hitting the headlines, really, for very different reasons now. Um, it's hitting the headlines because of, you know, this kind of huge breakdown, really, in, in, in many aspects of public life in Hong Kong and, and in, in terms of... Um, of civic society, and that's not great. I don't think it's not a it's not a great look for Hong Kong, and that's quite sad. But then, what's really heartbreaking is is the violence. You know, I wouldn't say the protests themselves are are sad or depressing. Like I said, I think, especially in the the early stages, it it kind of filled a lot of us with inspiration to see young people going out and and protesting peacefully and just getting you know the overwhelming support they received from so many sectors of Hong Kong was was inspiring and kind of affirming for many of us here who maybe have felt that the city has sort of kind of been drifting and inexorably in decline. Um, but the last, I think, three to four weeks with the onset of violence, with the kind of realization that the city is, is very divided um, and with the, the kind of clear signal, I guess, that the government is not really going to do anything to address this crisis. Um, that is quite heartbreaking, I think, because it, it suggests that there is no peaceful solution in sight. Uh, and, you know, to see Hong Kong hitting the headlines for clashes for, you know, between armed thugs and, and unarmed protesters, 
to see protesters um, committing, you know, acts of arson at police stations. You know, a couple of people got knifed, I think, last week. All of this is, is terrible for a city that honestly is one of the safest places on the planet. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult, actually, for, for, for many of us here. And it's exhausting. Honestly, it's really taking a toll. Yeah, I bet. And it can't be doing the whole travel and tourism industry uh, a great favour either in terms of Hong Kong no, destination. not at all. I mean, that's... So I think that's one of the government strategies is to hope that the slowdown in business will turn people in the city against the protesters. Um, and it doesn't seem to have happened that much. It definitely happened, I think, during the previous wave of protests in 2014. Um, but, you know, if anything, I think the, the city is, has taken a much bigger hit this time in terms of, um, you know, like you said, travel and tourism. Uh, I think we can talk about this soon when we talk about PR strategies, but one of the government spokespersons uh, at a press conference read out how, how badly the luxury sector has been hit. Um, well, that's a perfect example of exactly how tone deaf the government is because, you know, I, I can tell you uh, with my hand on my heart, the protesters couldn't care less about the luxury sector, <laughs> given, given that these are people who, you know, one of the, one of the big problems for them is that they, they will never be able to own their own home in Hong Kong. So um, it's, uh, yeah, the, the business-wise, Hong Kong is hurting, and, and that's, that's a problem. I mean, Hong Kong is a city above all else exists to do business. Um, without that, it's, uh, it doesn't really have that much of an identity. So how is this playing out from a, a comms point of view? Let's start with the, the Hong Kong administration and the, in the shape of um, Chief Exec Carrie Lam. What, what's her strategy mm. been and is it working? Well, it is very difficult to discern any kind of a strategy, actually. Um, certainly, yeah, well, certainly not one that you or I or anyone in the who's who's familiar with government communications would describe as a strategy. I think if there is a strategy, it is basically to say as little as possible, do as little as possible, and hope the movement loses steam and hope that ordinary Hong Kong people turn against the protest movement. Um, And as you can probably surmise, it's a very, very risky strategy. Um, because as you've seen, instead what's happened is the protest movement has gathered steam because of this uh, complete inaction on the part of the government. Um, And so in comparison to the protest movement, which looks vibrant and active, you have Carrie Lam, who basically looks inflexible, invisible and inauthentic. Didn't she just disappear for two weeks, like off-grid completely? as well. Yeah, and that, and that wasn't the first time. I mean, I think during this 10-week period, she's been off-grid, I'd say probably two or three times for, for periods of, of a couple of weeks. Um, she, and that, that's one of the, the sort of pillars of this strategy is for her to just disappear and not make any public appearances. Um, it's hugely risky. And, and she explained this away by saying that um, her presence just attracts criticism and, and that she's being bullied. And again, I mean, she's on a six million Hong Kong dollar a year salary. It's, it's such a tone deaf thing to say that you're being bullied by the people that pay your salary. Um, I mean, for, for any political leader 
to suggest that that criticism is is bullying. Um, when when she has made public statements, the the other problem is that they've been really really tone deaf, like I've said, and really inflexible. Um, they follow exactly the same template every time, which is to strongly condemn the protesters. I mean, and always using that phrasing, strongly condemn. So that in itself has become a, a catchphrase here in Hong Kong. Um, and then to reiterate support for the police and, to, um, and to, to, to reinforce how important law and order is. There's been absolutely no sympathy or empathy for anything the protesters um, and, and by extension, you know, the people the protesters represent, anything that they might be trying to accomplish. Um, there's been nothing about the protesters being hurt or being attacked, um, about uh, police brutality. You know, there's been so, much, so many documented cases. Um, so it's, it's just a really strange, it's, it's bizarre, it's illogical. Um, it's not surprising. Carrie Lam is not someone who's got a very high EQ. Um, so I think, you know, she was a poor choice to be chief executive in the first place. But that's, I guess, you know, that's probably why uh, one of the, the main demands is that the people could have more say in choosing their chief executive. Um, but it's critical for leadership at a time like this, I think, to have uh, the ability to connect with people and, and with the people that you're accountable to. Um, and so whilst I think she is inauthentic in the sense that she says she cares about Hong Kong and all of that kind of stuff, it does, never comes across as being sincere. In some, in some respects, I think she is kind of being authentic to who she is. The problem is that she's just a... a, a the evidence suggests she's a really poor leader. Uh, I, I can give you a couple, a couple more examples. Um... You know, they have, the, the government has, has from, from everything it's said, it seems far more upset about, you know, the Chinese flag being defaced than about its citizens being injured or hurt. Um, and, you know, that, again, it just, it reinforces the idea that she's not accountable to the people of Hong Kong and that she's far more concerned with her leaders um, in Beijing. So... I don't know, you tell me, how does that sound for a comm strategy? It sounds like somebody who's maybe a leader for the good times, but not uh, not in a time of, of crisis. Doesn't sound like she's up to the, the, the job at all of, of, of leading Hong Kong through this as as one. Do you think it's likely she'll, I mean, who's who's advising her on a comm? Do you think it's likely she'll bring in an agency or some external um, council for crisis comms and, and, and to try and kind of sort her messaging out on this? It's a great question. It's one I've been trying to get an answer to over the last few days. Um, I've asked a few people from everything I can find out, um, and just as well, really, because I can't imagine any agency that would take responsibility for this strategy. Uh, but for, from everything I can find out, she's there is no external agency involved. Um, doesn't appear to be any external advisors. Um, from what I've been told, she's relying on the government news service um, and maybe her kind of her own group of internal advisors. Um, you know, I, I do. I've, it's interesting because I've asked a couple of agencies uh, whether they'd be willing to take on this kind of an assignment. You know, provide Carrie Lam with some some just good old fashioned crisis PR advice. Um, and you know, one person I spoke to, uh, David Ko from Rudafin. You know, David is a is a Hong Kong kid. 
he said he would love to do it, actually. But then another agency I've spoken to that shall remain nameless um, said they wouldn't take her on. They, they, they believe she's too toxic and it would be far too risky given the employee base at most of these agencies is young Hong Kong people. And many of them are very sympathetic to the protest movement and, in fact, are, are quite possibly involved in the protest movement. Well, yeah, this, with this new wave of employee activism that we've uh, we've right. been writing about as well, that's, uh, that's not necessarily going to be a good move for any agency, is it? Yeah, well, and, and that's an interesting angle in and of itself. And we've covered that, as you know, in, in some detail in terms of Ogilvy and CBP and Edelman with the GEO group. Um, I, I heard yesterday, again, another agency that shall remain nameless, um, where the younger staff had been criticizing uh, the leaders for being out of touch, um, you know, saying can't, expat leadership doesn't care about what's happening in Hong Kong, um, which is, I, I think, probably not that surprising. Not, I'm not saying expat leadership doesn't care. I, I think... I think everyone cares deeply about what's happening. But to see those kinds of statements being voiced, I don't think is surprising at all because it's a very emotional time in Hong Kong. Yeah, it sounds um, like it. What about the police? Yeah. Do they have their own comms channels and messaging or is that, <laughs> do they come under the, the central leadership? No, the police has its own PR department. Um, they do their press conferences, which are just increasingly bizarre and ludicrous. In what like, way? Um, yeah, they're like something out of the... I mean, if, if it wasn't so sad, I'd say that like something out of a Monty Python sketch. Um, they held a press... Their, their most recent press conference involved demonstrating how a laser pointer could be used as a dangerous weapon um, by pointing it at some newspaper for 10 minutes. And, I mean, it, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It was just, it's just ludicrous. Um, and, then as it, and then it turned out that the laser pointer they were using which, they, by the way, they'd confiscated off a, a student leader and they'd arrested him for uh, possessing this laser pointer. Uh, they had to release him without charge because it didn't have any batteries in it. So it wouldn't have, wouldn't have crossed the threshold to, for being an offensive weapon. <laughs> not, that I, not that a laser pointer is an offensive weapon, by the way, but um, they were trying to prove it does. So the police... Um, that, the one thing I will say about the police is they are trying a little bit harder to portray a kind of a, a more human face. I think their public relations department is more experienced at you know, winning, trying to win the hearts and minds of Hong Kong people. The problem for the police is everything they do is... Um, completely undermined by the behaviour of their frontline forces. Yeah, I mean, when you've got so, tear gas and rubber bullets involved, it's, exactly. expressing sympathy right. is kind of a bit yeah. um, off, isn't yeah. it? Not, not that they, uh, I mean, they're not, they haven't gone that far. They're not expressing sympathy. But they're at least, you know, to, <laughs> taking questions with a smile. I mean, that counts, as, uh, that counts as kind of emotional empathy right now here in Hong Kong. Um, but yeah, their, their actions are just completely undermined. And so they're just not, they're just, you know, no one is, is kind of able to take their communications efforts particularly seriously. So let's, let's talk about the protesters. How are, how are they... Mm. Um... Yeah, they've had two. I mean, that, that's, I think, been one of... I think this week they've really, 
really kind of amplified what they're doing. They've demonstrated, I mean, honestly, they've demonstrated, I think, a really smart grasp of public relations. And maybe that's unsurprising given that this largely leaderless movement, although I do think there are leaders, they're just unidentified, um, is very young and very tech-savvy. Um, and that's kind of what you need to be in today's comms environment. But yes, they've, they've held, held two citizens' press conferences, um, which they uh, announced as being necessary to kind of correct um, all of the things that are coming out of the government press conferences. Um, so, you know, I think immediately they just, they just kind of seized the high ground. Um, they put out three people who refused to identify themselves, just saying they were just normal people involved in the protest, um, and just kind of shone the spotlight on all the kind of things that journalists have actually been trying to get answers for, things like police brutality and the impact of tear gas. Um, and then they held a second press conference where they just put forward members of the public, they were not even kind of people that you would argue as, you know, as being in, deeply involved in, in at least the upper kind of levels of the protest movement. Um, so that's just really smart, isn't it? If you think about it, putting forward, you know, it's, it's basic PR, right? Just, just get good third parties to, to endorse whatever you're trying to do, be open to questions um, and answer them. And, and it, or at least look like you're answering them honestly. It, it, it really strikes such a huge contrast with the government efforts. And, and honestly, the protesters are running rings around the government. So you have the press conferences. I don't know if you saw the laser show. Um, yeah, a couple of nights ago. So that was in response to the the, the police's laser press conference. And it was really just, again, another basic principle of public relations, which is using humor effectively. Um, you know, they were saying, okay, well, if a laser is such a dangerous weapon, we're going to go out and have a laser party. Um, and let's see what happens. Uh, and instead they turned it into to a, you know, a laser dance party. I think they needed it, to be honest, because it's just been such a harrowing experience for many of them. But it was great video. It was great PR, it's just great comms. Um, the other thing you have to say about the the protest movement is is it's just so tech savvy. Um, it's and you know it's like a really smart startup, I, I would suggest. Um, although, albeit one that doesn't appear to have a huge amount of funding, it doesn't really need it because it's using tech tools in particular to uh, organize itself. Uh, and to communicate with all of the people it needs to communicate with, and to engage with normal Hong Kong people as well. So, um, the I don't know if you're familiar with the tech platform Telegram. No, I, uh, I, that's not something I've come across. Is that what they're using? Yeah, it's it's not. I don't think it's massively popular in in the West, or, or I mean, to be honest, even in the East. But it's become very popular because it's an encrypted messaging platform. So it's seen as as much safer than than WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever. Uh, and so a lot of stuff happens on Telegram. Um, they use AirDrop as well. That's seen as being um, quite a safe way to communicate. And they've actually, started, <laughs> I found out this week, they've actually started using Tinder. Oh, brilliant. To, uh, That's quite subversive. <laughs> yeah, it is. So you can actually, if you're on Tinder, 
which I will confess I'm not. Um, you can actually get yeah, you can actually get information about where the next protest is being. You know, the thing to remember about this movement is one of the the their their slogans, one of their mantras is "Be Water," um, which is this idea that they have to be fluid and they have to be ready to move protests at any moment from one part of Hong Kong to another, um, and they use tech platforms to support that, really. So they'll very quickly just switch on a dime, uh, and that's just supported by these platforms. And, you know, that's the kind of thing they wouldn't have been able to do uh, 10 years ago. It's also the kind um, of thing that, the, that no government is ever going to be able to keep up with. Well, they, they would certainly have a hard time keeping up with, but I'd like to think there are some governments out there that are reasonably tech savvy i mean that yeah maybe not i don't know i certainly the hong kong government appears to be stuck in the 19th century you know they they are completely um at sea with the way that the protesters are using technology um the other thing I sh- i'd say about the protesters is you know they've got good slogans they're very good at coming up with funny slogans and then promoting them across social media. They're really smart in terms of how they use social media video. Um, and I suspect, and maybe I'd be interested to hear your views on this, I do get the sense that they, they generate more goodwill from the media. I feel like it's a more romantic story. Um, it's easy to cover. It's kind of an irresistible story in many respects. Um, you know, kids fighting against this so-called evil empire. Oh, it's very, it's um, very with the superhero zeitgeist, isn't it? I mean, it's right. You know, yeah, and they're wearing masks. Everyone's Spider-Man now, right? Right. Yeah, and they're wearing masks, right? So that helps. Um, so I think that helps them a lot as well. It is definitely, you know, I think it's definitely an easy, easier story to cover. Mm. How, what, sure. what role are the media playing? Do you think in in Hong Kong and, and beyond? Um. Well, in Hong Kong, I suppose the one thing the media provides in Hong Kong is is a measure of authenticity around, or sorry, a measure of credibility around information. Um, There's a, as you can imagine, there's an inordinate amount of fake news, uh, typically involving the Chinese army mobilizing on the border. Um, And I think people probably because the stakes are so high, are more trusting of news that comes from uh, more credible sources of information. Um, So that's the first thing. The other thing to remember is that Hong Kong media itself is deeply conflicted uh, because of, you know, based on their ownership. So you definitely have pro and anti-camps amongst the Hong Kong media. Um, There's maybe a couple that you could call relatively neutral um, but otherwise I think and Hong Kong is a very very media savvy population um, to the point where I feel like they're almost too suspicious sometimes of of the media of the of, of the kind of established media and what their ulterior motives might be um, and so because of that I do think that word of mouth is really important I think people are very trusting of people like them um, but the risk of that, of course, is, is I think everyone is ending up in their own bubbles and their own echo chambers. And so we're seeing a lot of these trends that we've 
seen elsewhere, whether it's in Brexit or American uh, elections. We're seeing them all play out here, no question. Um, and what about the Chinese and, government? How are they handling things? Are they are they are they making statements, or are they just leaving Hong Kong to leaving it to play out locally? So they're using their usual tools, which is their state-owned media, whether that's Global Times or China Daily, um, and you know they, 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 those those I don't know how familiar you are with those newspapers, but they favour a certain certain type of language and tone, <laughs> which which can strike. Uh, people who don't know them that well as, as being kind of peculiar, um, kind of Pravda-esque. Um, I think they refer to, to Hong Kong now as a colour revolution. Um, you do get some statements from official officials in Beijing, but actually they've left it to the Hong Kong and Macau uh, office here, which is actually here in Hong Kong. They actually have held two press conferences. The, the first press conferences they've, they've held since since China took over Hong Kong. so the first in 22 years. Um, they've held two. They're led by the guy who runs the office here. Um, it's very much, what's the phrase? Iron fist in velvet glove type of stuff. Don't mistake uh, China's restraint for weakness, that kind of stuff. So um, I would say they're probably becoming more active. Uh but they've, but still relatively restrained, you'd have to say, you know, and there's been very little, you know, there's a lot of people are trying to pass what the Chinese government is saying and what it means, you know, there's a whole kind of, there are people that sort of know this stuff well and can read between the lines. Um, but it's very difficult, I think, to, to really draw any conclusions from what they're saying. From a PR perspective, who do you think is doing, who's winning the PR battle? Who's doing best and worst? I mean, it sounds very much like the, the protesters have got the edge here, partly thanks to the tech they're using. Yeah, I think really for all the reasons um, we went through. So the technology, the, um, the press conferences, the, the, the use of humour, their kind of agility. I mean, they are like a, almost like a lean, agile startup, um, but without the annoying tech bros um the yeah maybe there's always annoying tech bros aren't there um and and the fact that they have a just a better story to tell i think they are running rings around the government in terms of pr it's not even a contest i mean if this was a a boxing match it just in terms of pr purely uh the referee would have stopped it <laughs> well, yeah, startups, we startups like to be disruptive, so this is kind of taking that to a new level, isn't it, really, I guess? Yeah, I mean, and it's actually, it's been really interesting because I think they've learned really well as well from the 2014 protests when actually what happened is the protest movement in that case started losing the PR battle. Um, and by, by the kind of end of the three months, they had really, really, you know, they, they sort of had to, shut it down because they'd lost the PR battle um, and one of the reasons why we're in week 10 and there's still no sign of it slowing down is because the protesters have had such a clever effective public relations strategy so it's a, it's a good example of how important public relations is. What about brands? Um, what comms are brands doing around what's happening? Uh, nothing in a word, <laughs> it's um, 
Yeah, it's very. In 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 some respects, it's it's unsurpri- it's unsurprising. They don't you know they don't want to get involved. It's risky for brands. You know, if they if they come out on one side or another, they will alienate either Beijing, um, which is never a good idea if you're a company trying to operate in Hong Kong. And every every company, every big company in Hong Kong has has significant interests in China. So they're all led by, I mean, for the most part, they're led by people who are um, close to Beijing. Uh, but then they're all staffed by people who are often young and will often be sympathetic to the protesters. I wonder if there's some so, I- internal stuff going on within, in, in terms of internal comms that isn't actually making it out as an official position, but is um, expressing that. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, a couple of malls have come out and said, you know, p- police are not welcome here um, because... They just don't want police coming in and arresting people in their malls. Uh, we've seen a couple of brands express their support for the protesters, but they're not Hong Kong brands. So I think there was a Taiwanese bubble tea brand that did, I think, um, I think the Japanese energy drink, Pokari, did said something, and, and that led to a boycott in mainland China because they, of course, were unhappy about this. Um, but that's you know that's the other calculation for brands, of course. If they're, if they're in China, they don't want to annoy mainland Chinese consumers. Um, so yeah, brands are really invisible, I think, and I'm not massively surprised. But then I also feel like at some point, you know, employees may start forcing some sort of a response internally in, in the way we've seen with with many companies. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if um, at some point, and we've seen it across the West, and I know it's, it's more delicate uh, with the mm. Chinese government, but we've, see, we've seen so many brands and uh, uh, brand leaders as well standing up for, for you know, taking more political position in the West, which, which is new even for, mm. for Western brands. So um, yeah. it's, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, one thing I should say, one one of the interesting things about this movement is, you know, obviously the the thing that triggered all of this was this um, extradition law to China. And that was uh, almost uniformly opposed by the business community here in Hong Kong. And that's actually what lent the protests so much initial support, because that was a very rare, I think, moment when you really had pretty much the whole of Hong Kong aligned against this law, uh, including a constituency that usually will support the government and will support Beijing, which is the business community. Um, But they were very worried that this meant that they could be arrested um, and taken across the border to China. And no businessman in Hong Kong wants that to happen. No, no. Um, That's like their worst nightmare. So... There was a lot of sympathy from the business community towards the protests, certainly in its early stages. I think that's shifted to an extent. Um, but because of that, I think you... I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think the protests have been able to sustain themselves some, themselves for so long, um, because of that. Yeah, they've had that support from the beginning. How, how do you hope yeah. the situation is going to play out? I mean, it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. It looks like it's going to, you know, it's a bit of a stalemate in terms of um, anything shifting from one side to the other. But how do you hope it will evolve? Yeah, I think that 
the only way this resolves peacefully is, is if one side or the other gives ground. Um, I can't see the protesters giving ground because I think they still feel like they have the support of the city um, and they feel like their demands haven't been met, uh, including their kind of demands from the very beginning haven't been met. Um, I think the government is not going to give ground because they've made it really clear that they won't and I suspect they're under some sort of pressure to not give ground. I think it would, I mean, if if I was <laughs> advising Carrie Lam, uh, not that that is ever going to happen, but um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, so many people I've spoken to in in the PR industry have said it would have been very easy for Carrie Lam to address some of these issues quite early on, make some relatively minor concessions, start a kind of process of dialogue, and that probably would have um, taken a lot of the heat out of everything. Um, but because that hasn't happened, what you're seeing is it's almost like she's kind of had to, to box herself in now. She just gets more and more entrenched, and if she was to give way now, it would be such a huge loss of face. Um, but I still think that is probably the most sensible um, course of action, which doesn't mean it's going to happen. So, so yeah, so in terms of what do I think will happen, I think, yeah, I think that's why people are hoping that something external will happen. Not, I'm sorry, when I say people are hoping something external will happen, they're hoping that something like the start of the school term or the university term will maybe reduce um, some of the intensity um, because if not then like I said before it's the prospect of another kind of external event which is um, far less palatable I think I wouldn't say nobody wants it it's probably a few people that do I mean there's <laughs> you'd be surprised um, yeah. it's uh it's it's a definitely an interesting situation I, it looks like it's going to be hitting the headlines for a while yet um i mean what's the what's your what's the perspective that that you have i'm i'm curious to know from over there how are you seeing it from a kind of uh, a comms perspective i think it, uh, well in i i think the 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 guardian and the rest of the and the bbc and the rest of the media who are reporting it in the in the west in london in particular um you know we're the, culturally and historically we've got a very we we have a, a great closeness and, uh, and and fondness and affection for for hong kong it's still it's still seen as something that there is British interest in and I think everyone's been that there's a, there's a general sense of a, a kind of disbelief and dismay that they could, this could happen somewhere where, as you said has such a great reputation for being a real east meets west melting pot culturally in terms of business um in terms of its position and reputation in the world and I'm yeah I think I think there's a there's a kind of real disbelief and sadness and I think that you're absolutely right the sympathy is very much with uh, very much with the protesters and and absolute dismay at, at police brutality as well um because it, it, it's not something you would ever think would happen in Hong Kong I mean it's it's um it's just one of those places where as you said it's seen as safe uh, it's seen as uh, as as liberal um so yeah, I think I think there's a general sense of kind of disbelief that that it's actually happening there. 
Yeah, the uh, the unthinkable has kind of become mundane here, which in 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 a in a in a remarkably short space of time. Well, um, thanks for giving us some real insight to what it's like on the ground over there and all the the PR battle that's playing out. Um, thank you very much and stay safe. Thanks, Maya. Speak to you thanks soon. everyone for listening. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.